listening to 353rd. I'm Anders Brownwood. And I'm Scott Barstow. How you doing, Scott? How are things? <clears throat> things are good. I'm excited about, uh, I'm excited about this week's topics and uh, ready to rock and roll. I feel like I feel like things are finally coming together. We uh, we got a name for our show now, which we didn't have last time. Three fifty third. It wasn't. Yeah, in, <laughs> it yeah, wasn't yeah. I'm excited about the name uh, and uh, and just excited about the the direction of the things and feel like we got something good going. Yeah, definitely. So that that uh, uh, brings us to our our first uh, point here. We were going to make this uh, section at the beginning of the show, where, which we call Rewind, where we hit uh, topics that maybe have, uh, have sort of progressed since we last talked. And as it uh, turns out, uh, the location thing kind of blew up maybe a day or two after we recorded last, uh, the Apple-Google location spat that that's being saved on all the phones. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Scott? <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think it... The, what was what was great to see, and I, it was too bad that we didn't have uh, you know the name of the thing and our podcast already set up by uh, by the time we did our first show because I think it would have been uh, would have been uh, we were right on target with with the topic and and I think the what it what it serves to underscore is that uh, is uh, you know the points that we covered which is or which are that the the general user you. Know, the the fact that Apple and Google were <clears throat> tracking everywhere you went on on the iPhone and Android devices respectively, I don't think should was a surprise to really anybody that um, knows the landscape of technology. This is what technology companies do uh, because they want to know they want as much information as possible about what their users are doing. That's how they. That's how they figure out what's valuable. That's how they uh, figure out how to market. It's and so information is the currency of the internet. And so I, it's not surprising to me uh, that the that they were doing it. It's only surprising to me, I guess, that uh, that it wasn't more public sooner. So uh, yeah, that that actually brings up a good point. I think what what this study shows is the the sort of the awakening in the public's mind that, oh, wait a second, they can track where I am. I mean, this has always been the case, but now suddenly in a very public way, this is coming out. And so what we're seeing is this this huge backlash that, uh, you know, we've all sort of known about forever and is first, you know, showing it, rearing its ugly head, I guess. Um, but to be completely, to just be accurate... Apple and Google are not saying they're they're tracking your location. They're just saying they're uh, uh, noticing the different wireless networks around you, be they cell towers, Wi-Fi, whatever, and they're writing that information down. Of course, you can infer a location from that, but they're not right. actually doing that. Yep. Yeah. That's that is a, that's an important distinction because much of the uh, much of the hubbub and furor was that you know it was. Uh, you know there are black helicopters circling over your house and <laughs> and you know tracking where you went and you know you had a bullseye on the top of your head. Um, yeah, so it's 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 uh, while we may get to that point, we're certainly not at that point yet. For all of the conspiracy theorists uh, out there, of which I am happily one. Um, oh no! Don't the, tell me uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, but I do think it's uh, I uh, it just goes to i think what it what it underscores is 
the the need for consumers to uh, to think about when they when they are turning on these devices, uh, like we talked about the last time, when you turn this device on, yes, it's great that you get all of this power, you know, in a device that's three by five. Everybody acknowledges that you know, it's amazing what you can do with these devices. You just need to understand that um, that with that same technology comes, uh, you know comes the ability to do things that you may or may not be in favor of and you've got to if you want the if you want all of the interesting things that come with those devices you're going to be giving something up yeah in this case in this case that's uh some information about where you are and and i think for i think for most people that's probably okay yeah and if you're not if you're not okay with that, you know you need to, you need to cut up your credit cards, you know, go to the well, bank, get, get all your cash out of the mattress. And, this, you yeah. know, you need to stop carrying around a radio yep. because you know it doesn't require any smarts or intelligence on your handset to figure out where you are. If you've got this homing beacon on you all the time, it's elementary to just point a directional antenna around and kind of find out pretty much exactly where you are. Yep. So uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. So we were so we were talking a little bit before the show. We have uh, uh, this friend of ours who got a, a very interesting uh, uh, sort of a, a job prospect um, from Microsoft, and, and and you you heard from him first, so I, I can let you take the lead on this. Yeah. So the uh, Microsoft is looking. Uh, was looking at the time to recruit a, a new technology director for their new retail stores. And for those of you that haven't seen the new Microsoft retail stores, uh, you can go on YouTube and watch the videos of the first store opening in Scottsdale, Arizona. Is, is it just me or is that the most embarrassing video? I, I cringe when I watch this video. Yeah, it was, it was like... Uh, Fake you know, hype. Yeah, it was it was fake. It was. I felt like I was watching an episode of Glee or something. Yeah, um, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> no, put the video in the show notes. Is what I mean. Oh, I thought you meant we were going to put the episode of Glee in the. Oh, show. Oh, we could do that too. Uh, probably, you know, Hulu has it. I don't know. But uh, but I think the so anyway the uh, but suffice to say that the the stores uh, look remarkably like the Apple Store. Um, and you've got uh, you know people walking around in color coordinated shirts. So if you're a, if you're a salesperson, you wear a blue shirt, and if you're a I don't know if you're the equivalent of a genius, you probably wear a green shirt. I don't know. But <clears throat> the anyway, back to the back to the topic. The so they're looking for somebody new to head up the uh, the uh, the the technology that drives the stores, and and so he and I got to talking a good bit, and we talked about what. Uh, what would make a Microsoft store interesting? Because as you know, you can buy, Microsoft does not make their own hardware for the most part. And, and you can buy most any, with the exception of the Xbox, of course. Um, and so you can buy anything that Microsoft makes at any electronics store. So I could buy, I could go to Best Buy and get an HP computer that's got Windows 7 on it and all of the various, uh, you know, Windows Office and all of those kinds of things. I don't need to go to uh, the, to a Microsoft Store to get those things. And so, I think he, as he and I were talking, I think I talked to you about this. 
the question that that inevitably I asked was, well, why would I go to a Microsoft store at all? Yeah. And I, and so I think the what you and I talked about covering is what would make it interesting. Well, you know, Microsoft is is right now at least seen as kind of this the third you know the third guy on the deal team. You've got uh, you've got Apple. Uh, seems to be at least for uh, in terms of innovation they seem to be way out front you've got Google uh, right there with them and then you've got Microsoft kind of uh, back stuck in the corporate world still making a ton a pile of money uh, still a very viable technology company but they're not really doing anything interesting um, and new and exciting that gets people you know out of their seats and you know on their way to the store to spend money and so I think what what you and I talked about covering was why would why what would make us get out of our chair on a Saturday afternoon exactly and go to the Microsoft store? Yeah, what would it be? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean they have to make their own hardware. So the Xbox you bring up that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, you know the Xbox is kind of the glaring uh, uh, you know anomaly here. I guess you don't you don't uh, you don't farm out making uh, uh, set top boxes or, or game systems rather. Uh, to third parties, but uh, you know, outside of that, the entire lineup is. Uh, so, does Microsoft have to make hardware? I think. Uh, I think to be to be interesting to make a uh, store what, work. Yeah, what? Yeah, to make a store work. Uh, so, the going back to the why would I? Why wouldn't I just go to Best Buy? Yeah. Um, I think in order to get me into the store, I think there's a there's a few things that I could do. One is I make I I make hardware and I make devices that I can't get anywhere else. Um, yeah. So I've I've got to go to the Microsoft store to get you know the new Microsoft tablet or the new Microsoft phone or the new for that matter the new Microsoft PC. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know a PC that is next generation you know very sleek. Um, well designed, well thought out. I'd say, I'd a say, lot, you a know, lot more money, um, you know, than I would spend for a Dell equivalent. Uh, but it's what you know, all of the things that make people, you know, jam the Apple Store on a given Saturday afternoon. Uh, I can go to Best Buy and get Apple products, um, but there's something far more interesting about going to an Apple Store. Uh, and it's fun to go. Why? Right? Why? Why is it? What? Yeah. yeah well, so. So it's it's one hundred percent Apple experience. It right? is. And then you got uh, you go to the Best Buy store, and there's like that black uh, carpet on the ground, and the Apple experience is inside that carpet. But outside, it's you know, it's any man's land. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, and so I don't I don't buy I don't generally even though I could I don't generally like I could go and buy an iPad at Best Buy. But I usually go to the Apple Store to buy all of my Apple products because I enjoy the experience of walking around the store, looking at the new cinema displays, you know, uh, tinkering with the latest, uh, you yeah. know, iPod, iPod thing or you know whatever it is. There, there always seems to be something new to just mess around with. I would say it's also the quality. Like you, you, you go to all of the shelves and everything they have there. There's a reason that it's there. It's not like. Well, this will, you know, this may sell. Let's see if this might sell. It seems to be much more deliberate. Like, this is really good. This is, you know, might be really expensive, but it's not a waste of your time to take a look at it and consider, 
what niche this fills or, or whatever it is. They're kind of best of class devices. You don't find bottom of the barrel USB, you know, uh, you know, little memory sticks or whatever. You're yep. going to find like, uh, you know, interesting stuff, way overpriced in some cases, especially the cases. Yes. Um, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the, you know, what, what Microsoft has to do is take a similar approach. And if you, if you ask them, I think they would say that they are, uh, so the, in their opinion, you know, the store experience is a bit of a premium experience. It's a step up from the Best Buy experience, but they don't have this idea of everything in there being a Microsoft branded thing. And I think, um, and certainly Microsoft has the money. Yeah. There's no question. They've got the money to do something that's different. And you and I have talked before about this idea that maybe they need to jettison the Windows brand for a new yeah. <clears throat> for a new set of devices. So if, uh, and I'm not suggesting that they get rid of Windows because it's obviously very profitable. It makes them a ton of money. They do really well in the corporate space. Yeah, but it so, hobbles them, like they right. because they try to attach everything to the Windows name. Exactly. Um, so know, the, it's a Windows phone. It's a Windows yeah. this. It's a Windows that. And I think the there's an opportunity to say you know that's that's an important piece of the Microsoft empire. But there's yeah. also there's also a new brand, uh, and that brand is called you know whatever. I, I thought the the Windows Phone was uh, Windows Phone Seven or whatever they're calling it. it was very interesting. I mean, it has virtually nothing to do with Windows because it's a touch interface. There, you don't pop Windows up. It's kind of like a slide interface, side to side. You know, the titles don't even fit on the screen. But yep. I thought it was well done. I mean, it might be a you know third place runner or whatever, but. Uh, uh, so to get back to this, we're, we're talking about Microsoft actually building a, a, a piece of hardware and competing, arguably, against HP, Dell, whatever. So I think Google has been playing with this same sort of idea with their Nexus phones. First of all, it was just HTC, Samsung, whatever it was, all these companies. And then, and you know, nobody was getting it right, arguably. So Google said, here's your reference. And then they made the G1, and then they made the Nexus 1, and then the Nexus S. These, these phones clearly compete with uh, some of the others, but they, they tend to be best of breed. Uh, you know, this is the Google phone, you know, that people got attached to that. And I think, so they were testing the waters there. I, do you, so we're basically saying in order for the store to be successful, Microsoft has to make that jump and, and uh, you know, make the premium PC, the premium laptop or whatever it is? I think so. I think, uh, you know, history has shown over the last five to seven years that people will pay premium dollars for a premium product. Yeah. Uh, that's how Apple makes all of their money. And you can make the case that... Um, you know, you're paying just like you pay more for a pair of Nike shoes because it has the swoosh on the side. You certainly pay more for Apple equipment because it has, because it's just kind of well packaged and, you know, people get attached to the brand. There's certainly Apple fanboys that, you know, that just buy it because it's Apple. But I think yeah. the, um, for the general, you know, for the, the technologist that's, uh, that's interested in looking at new things. And for that matter, just kind of the, the person that's interested in uh, the, that's interested in just seeing and trying new things. I think there's an opportunity for Microsoft to come out with something that competes head to head with 
some of the more popular Apple products, that is a Microsoft premium. It's a Microsoft case. It's a Microsoft yeah. OS. That's Whether it's called Windows or not is probably irrelevant right now, but it'd be interesting for them to try a different brand there. I like the um, idea of Microsoft not competing head-to-head. Like I, I, I think the Windows Phone 7 you know, significantly uh, distinguishes itself from the iPhone and certainly from Android. Uh, you know, so so I don't know that they need to, to hit them straight on. Matter of fact, I don't know that, that it wouldn't work. I would I would think. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah. All right. So, let's let's so, move on. Yeah. So uh, so you were just telling me about Monsanto. I, I you know I know a little bit about Monsanto. Giant you know food company is pretty much all I've got. In a bunch of lawsuits. Why don't you tell me about this? <laughs> so what's what's interesting about the food supply? Um, and I just happen, you know, I do some work for uh, an organization that's that's a part of the agriculture business in the United States, and and I think what's been interesting for me is to learn about how um, crops are grown. And I think so. For for those of you that uh, that don't know. Basically, the way it works is, and this is almost universally true now, there's very few uh, farms that grow, that don't grow, uh, you know, genetically modified crops. And those, you know, so if you're an organ- organic farm, obviously you're not. But for the mass, for probably 95% of the food supply in the United States, it's, it's grown with genetically modified crops. <coughs> um, uh, it's, it's genetically modified in some way. And so the way it works is a farmer that wants to plant his field with, uh, you know, with some corn hybrid, the way it works is that much like uh, if I wanted to load Windows on my uh, computer, I've got to go buy a Windows license uh, and in order to install it and get the software onto the machine. It's the same thing. It's the same process for a farmer to plant crops in the United States. So how do they control it, though? So the way it works is that if uh, if I go to buy a bag of seed from a retailer, I've got to I've got to buy a license to plant that seed, and that license comes from the seed manufacturer, whether it's Monsanto or Pioneer or there's a couple there's two or three others, um, but Monsanto is certainly the the dominant force in the market and. So I've got to have a license to buy that seed. Not only do I have to have a license to buy the seed, but I have to they track how much I buy. So if I'm planting a 100-acre field, I buy enough grain to plant that 100-acre field or enough seed to buy, to plant that 100-acre field. And if I buy more than I should, um, Monsanto is aware of that. And if I and if I don't return the unused portion, what? That's <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Sorry, that's craziness. Uh, yeah, and and so the retailer is responsible for selling the grower the right amount of the right amount of seed to plant what they need to plant, and the and then reporting back to the seed manufacturer. And that's really what these companies are. And why, why do make, they why do they care? Just because because you're only licensed to grow as as much as you got. That's exactly right, and they don't want you selling it. Right, ah, so so you can only sell. So it has to be through an authorized reseller. Right. It's it's literally the same as buying software. It's a great way to think. You are buying. Yeah. You buy seed to put in the ground. You are buying intellectual property. Right. So so yeah. So it's control for how it's. So trying to squash a black market is basically why they do that. Yep. Yep. And they and they want to know. 
they want to know how much is being planted. Yeah. And so, um, so what happens is then you're also required to report back uh, harvest information um, at the end, so when you harvest that grain, you've got to know you, you're responsible for reporting back uh, via production reporting how much you actually harvested. And so, the the so what of all of this is um, is that farmers are in sent, uh, are essentially indentured servants. If you think about um, and if you watch the movie Food Inc., which I highly recommend to anybody that. Um, has not watched it. It's just a tremendous movie about the food supply in the United States. Um, and But what happens is that farmers, um, they used to be back in, so my family is uh, are all Kansas farmers, uh, the Barstow family and my mom's family, all homesteaded in Kansas. And, uh, you know, so I come from kind of that heritage. And so what would happen in uh, traditional farming is that at the end of the season, if I was growing corn, I would take my best corn seed and I would save it for the next season. And that's how I would plant yeah. the next season. And so what happens now is that I cannot, if I, so if I buy too much Monsanto XYZ corn seed, um, if I have some left, I have to return it. I cannot keep it. And yep. so what that forces is uh, the next season I've got to go back. But right? but if but can't you take some of your best corn and replant it, or do they modify it so it it's it is sterile? it is it is sterile. Yeah. So and that's the, essentially a hybrid. Any hybrid is sterile, so it will not reproduce. Right. And and so you're buying something that's sterile, so you have to go back and buy it again next year. Not only that, but uh, they're now starting to grow. The, the kind of the next wave, and this has already happened to some extent, but it's really starting to happen more prevalently, is that they are engineering the crops or engineering the seeds to only be to be resistant to only their pesticides. <laughs> so if you use another yeah. brand of pesticide, um, it will effectively kill the pl- kill the seed. So, so um, what about the uh, organics movement? Isn't that uh, going <laughs> to sort of hopefully invert this? Well, I think the the problem with organics is that it takes um, it takes too much land to grow organic food. So the um, <clears throat> the you can grow. I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough to know the difference. But there's the the yield that you get from a genetically modified uh, planting versus a organic planting is it's just yeah. not even close. Right. And so that's why we have. Just this massive production of corn is a great example. You know, corn is used in everything, <clears throat> and it's grown. I mean, we produce the United States produces just an an astronomical amount of corn, um, and and be, because it's used in nearly every food, and it's also used to make things that aren't food, and and so the the I guess all of that to say the thing that's bothered me about. Uh, about all of this is that, as you know, in the 1990s, Microsoft was sued um, by the federal government for in the using antitrust laws and for monopolistic and predatory ah, practices. See where you're going with this. And so my question is, and it's really an open, and I, you know, I have my conspiracy theory answers, right? <laughs> but um, and the, and if you watch the movie Food Inc., it will just uh, it just feeds those it just feeds those theories. But oh but the question in my mind is why isn't the government pursuing these large grain or seed companies 
in the same way that they pursued a technology company that was perceived as being monopolistic. Yeah, that's and interesting. Whether or not you agree with the Microsoft suit, which uh, I, there's probably uh, there's you know differing arguments about whether that was uh, you know whether the government overstepped its bounds, and I would argue that they did. I think the marketplace would have taken care of. And we've seen already that the micro, that the marketplace has a great way of leveling the playing field uh, if you're putting out an inferior product. And certainly, Internet Explorer in its day was an inferior product, but it was uh, but it was shipped with every you know every instance yeah. of Windows and all of the things that they got sued for and ended up you know paying billions of dollars for. Um, my question is why isn't why isn't Monsanto subject to the same scrutiny? Well, they, I, they probably are. It's just that nobody's bringing the case yet. Like, who you got to get together with the government and say, uh, you know, let's slap this down. I mean, who's complaining? So I would argue that uh, that the reason that it's not happening is because Monsanto is deeply entrenched. Yeah. Um, in in just the the amount of money that they spend on lobbying uh, and. Uh, placement of extremely high, you know, high authority officials is is very interesting. They've got tremendous authority and influence um, at all levels of government, and I think the uh, it's I don't yeah. understand. For me, it's very hard to understand uh, why the government permits uh, a company that is just uh, and like I said, I don't think any most people don't realize just how much. Probably two or three companies control food supply in the United States, and I think it's you would say Monsanto, um, uh, Tyson out of Arkansas, with all of the you know chicken and all of those kind of things. There's really probably three to five companies in the U.S. that control food supply in the United States. So, so basically, uh, the uh, the key is to fix Congress first. You know, uh, Larry Lessig. Yes. Is, uh, fix Congress, Larry. So I'm in uh, I'm in Cambridge. Uh, Massachusetts and Larry uh, is right down the road from from here. Uh, I see him every once in a while. Um, he's doing this uh, Fix Congress uh, thing. If you go to fixcongressfirst.org, it's uh, it's interesting. He talks a little bit about this. Uh, so uh, interesting stuff. In any case, I have no idea. I don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, obviously, but uh, it's it's uh, a whole new uh, sort of a whole new. I need to go watch a movie. Uh, you know. <laughs> You know, I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, I think it's it's a topic for us to come back to. Yeah. Um, because I think there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, yeah, dynamics yeah, to the sure. argument, and I and I think there's if you read the book, The Rational Optimist, uh, he talks about the need for genetically modified crops mm -hmm. to um, so this idea that and it's it's been historically true that at times of high population growth there are the chicken littles out there that say we're going to run out of food yeah and and so in the in the book the rational optimist matt ridley does a great job of sort of debunking that and saying innovation has always been in lockstep with population growth and it's always provided a way to grow the food supply um whether it was going yeah. from you know mules plowing your field to tractors plowing your field, you know, just sort of this progression of technology and innovation that has fueled the ability for us to supply enough food to keep people fed. Yeah, I think, I think uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that was one of the topics that back in the day that economists got wrong 
I don't know if it was Schumpeter or, or probably somebody before him pretty much said, yeah, things are going to be pretty great until, you know, we've sort of reached this, this nexus point where population just grows and, and we can't feed them and then the whole world is going to come to an end. And what he forgot to factor in was, uh, was just the absolute explosion of technology. Yeah. Um, you know, back in his day, just a, a minor, uh, uh, you know, a minor thing at the time. But my word, it's, it's basically allowing us to live. Yeah, and I think the and that's been uh, if you read the Rational Optimist, you'll he he uh, there's been probably six to eight occurrences of that in the last three hundred years where yeah. people have said, okay, if we hit a billion people, we're going to run out of food. Yeah. If we hit three billion people, we're going to run out of food. And the and the last one, you know, if we hit five billion, we're going to run out of food. Well, we're well past that, and we're on our way to nine. And um, and I think the there's and so. Genetically modified crops, you know, because of the yields that they can produce, allow us to to feed more people more cheaply. Yeah. And so, the, so the question is not do they have a place? Because I think technology has a place in food, just like it does anywhere else. Um, but the it's more of a do are we going about it the right way? Is there is there, for instance, an open source seed movement? And there there are companies or there are organizations that are exploring this. You know, do should we have a the counterbalance, which is which is that we had in technology with Linux and all of those kinds of things that yeah. were the that were the counterbalance to the Microsoft juggernaut? Do we need that same thing in food, where we've got organizations that are dedicated to doing, uh, you know, genetic work with food, with food, but it's not putting the farmer, you know, in a position of being servitude. A, yeah, being a slave to to the to the to the seed company. Yeah, that's very interesting. Right. And uh, so I think we're we're totally out of time on our, our thing, but I do want to jump to our uh, our topic, our other movie topic, uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. They do not make movies like this anymore. I mean, I, they don't make TV like this anymore. I think we were saying that last week. Um, it's it's really quite incredible. Um, so you've seen this. You saw this recently, right? You saw this. Uh, Right? Yeah, my uh, my son loves all of the Indiana Jones movies, and so whenever whenever uh, my wife and daughter are out of the house, we either watch old Star Wars or we watch Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, that's so. a, that's a quality uh, treasure trove to, to pull from. Um, so I didn't know this. the the uh, the, the screenplay uh, Lawrence Kasdan he, he did uh, Empire Strikes Back, arguably. Uh, the best Star Wars movie, but that's probably a topic for another uh, thing. He wrote Return of the Jedi, Wyatt Earp, even Bodyguard, Silverado. Interesting guy. So he was signed on to write this uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark idea, which was uh, uh, Lucas back in the day kind of kicking around a uh, James Bondian uh, film, but wanted to set it differently and sort of have an American kind of uh, take to it. Um, and they actually uh, were lured in with some of the crazy Bond uh, uh, gadgets and gizmos. One of the ideas was to have a, the, the villain in Raiders be, uh, have a metal arm. Uh, and they decided against it because it just wouldn't fit in the... Nobody would have had a metal arm in the 1930s. Uh, so they, they kind of came up with all these ideas and things were great and blah, blah, blah. But... Uh, uh, George Lucas had some other idea about a, some crazy space cowboy adventure and, and wanted to go off and do that, so he shelved it. 
uh, and finally, thankfully, it saw the, the light of day. Um, so uh, George Lucas and I think Philip Kaufman, uh, who wrote The Right Stuff and uh, uh, actually the last film, Kingdom of the Skull. Can I just say that I'm just going to tell you right now, there's, a, there's an inherent bias here. Kingdom of the Skull is terrible. I haven't watched it because everybody that I know that has watched it had the exact same opinion. I cannot, I can't even follow the movie. Like, there's all kinds of crazy things that go on. There's dinosaurs running around, people driving cars on the impossible edge of a cliff. All right, let's go back to Raiders it's of the Lost Ark. It's just crazy. Okay. Anyway, so, coolest thing in the beginning. They, they, they signed up with Paramount, and they, uh, they take the, uh, the Paramount Mountain, and they, they find a mountain that looks exactly like this. I'm dying to know whether or not they just kind of happened across that or some, some really great location scout guy found that. You know what I'm talking about right in the beginning? Yep, I sure That's do. so clever. And then they don't show Indy's face for like, you know, the first few minutes of the film. Not until like there's an assassination attempt against him. Like you would have thought that the, that the main characters were his cohorts, you know, in yep. search of this thing. You know, yep. poison's still fresh. Three days. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but uh, so I don't know. Anyway, so it goes on and on. But the, there's um, um, this very careful uh, way that they create uh, suspense and tension by demonstrating what the uh, what the you know, danger is or what the result would be by either you see some kind of gate made of spears that clearly just skewered the last guy. Uh, yeah, and you see the, you see the skeleton, they show you the skeletons yeah. of the guys ahead of him. And yeah, all that exactly. Sort of thing. So he, I forget what the, what is the guy's name? Some guy, you know, uh, um, who knows? They'll call the French, him Joe. The French guy? The French guy. What, some, yeah, some previous... uh, Bullock or... Uh, oh, no, uh, no. I'm, yeah, what, I'm, I'm talking about some other previous explorer that, that Indy actually had his name. He was like, you know, th- this guy... Anyway. And then, you know, of course, the gate comes out and there's this horribly decomposed body and then he says the guy's name again. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess that's what happened. It sort of harkens back to Goonies. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with uh, uh, Potter, or whatever that guy's name was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great movie, by the yeah. way. Yeah, wow. We're going to have to hit that one. Anyway, yeah, good times. Um, so I, I just thought they did that really well in demonstrating the darts and what happens if you step on the wrong stone on the way over, blah, blah, blah. But then there's this, like, this foreshadowing of, oh, I'm going to need a bag of sand. I mean, and how do you know how heavy the stupid little gold thing is? I mean, it didn't yeah. seem. And the, like, the funniest part of that scene to me is that he looks at the he looks at the golden idol, and he's got the bag and a bag of sand in his hand, and he says, "Oh, I think I need to dump a little bit yeah, out." Yeah. <laughs> right. So not like only does he have the sand, but yeah. he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm just just by looking at this thing, it's you know, it's yeah, eight inches tall and it's yeah. you know, this big around. Yeah. Uh, I can tell that I need to dump out." you know, a second's worth of sand. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And then of course he gets it wrong and he's, you know, he has to start this whole, uh, ball rolling down the, the, you know, down the channel, which I thought was just brilliantly shot. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing for that, that, for that, especially for that time. And I don't know how they shot. I don't know if it was a real ball or if it was all was a 20 foot paper mache. Right. That's right. I remember reading that. I mean, yeah. now that now that would be computer computer animation. I think you would lose some of the just the reality of you know his 
Uh, I just thought that was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's exactly right. Because that ball comes rolling down the thing. And right as he's about to leave, you know, he kind of runs through that spider's web. Yeah. But that spider's web is being pushed forward because of the air. It's exactly right. And it just gives this sort of this visceral reaction that you just don't have in movies. I mean, you could try to fake that with like a fan. But like it would be too strong or it would like... Uh, there's just something, and also something about the actor when he's got this enormous. Okay, it's probably only like you know 100 pounds, but this giant thing rolling toward him. Now I don't yeah, know how it, they. You know, there's still a it. real. There's still a real danger. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think if if I were if I had that ball running at me, I I would have a sense of some sort of foreboding if yeah. that thing's coming at me. Yeah. And and I think well not to not to jump back to the Goonies too much, but they did the same ball rolling and you know building suspense with that too. I, I wonder if they got that idea, you know, they just he pulled it right from from uh, Indiana Jones because that it goes on like a you know two hundred foot <laughs> you know roll down something and starts some Rube Goldberg machine and all. I mean it, that that was all right. I'm not going to talk about the Goonies. I'll try not to talk about the Goonies. <laughs> The other question I had about that scene, we'll get off of this scene, I'm telling you, because we do this this slowly, we'll never get done with this movie. The question is, how, when he's running across the field with all the, the uh, you know, Indian guys behind him, how does he, how can he yell to his friend that's fishing on the airplane, uh, how can he yell to him and have, and, and kind of impart the seriousness of the conversation if... When he gets to the airplane, he he clearly goes through a string of trees and swings on a vine. <laughs> yeah, Andy's probably a solid two hundred yards away. From uh, yeah, the vine. yeah, exactly. I mean, so he's he's screaming, which of course you would be doing if you had you know fifty Indians chasing him with blow darts. Yeah, but but you, I, I was as I was watching it, I had that very same thought the last, and I hadn't really thought about it until this last time I watched it. I was like. Okay, could he really hear him? <laughs> no, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. But, but that's you know, okay. It's the movies. It is, but but we but it didn't stick out in my mind until I you know kind of more closely watching it a fiftieth time or whatever I'm on now. Yeah, um, I probably watch this movie too much. It's not, it's not good. I mean, <laughs> I don't think you, you can't watch that movie. too Yeah, much. maybe that's right. That's probably right. The other thing, I, so he gets the other thing he does, not to be too nitpicky, but uh, he hops on the uh, airplane in San Francisco and he's going to fly out to. Uh, you know, I guess he makes a stop in, in Honolulu or whatever. He, if you watch it, he packs himself a six-shooter and right. puts it in his bag and walks onto the airplane. <laughs> I bet you could do that in those days, though. I, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, did, you certainly didn't have the security concerns that you have today. No, you don't. So. You don't. <laughs> anyway. No, so very interesting. So uh, interestingly, the sound—I thought the sound in this film was fantastically done. The the little six shooter thing he's got there was actually the sound guy did a uh, uh, a thirty thirty Winchester rifle. Yeah, and that's yeah, exactly right. It sounds like a cannon going off. Golly, that makes you just—it just puts a smile on your face. Yeah, yeah, it's anyway. great stuff. Wow. I think the yeah, I think, and you've got all, throughout the movie, you've got. You know, bullets going past him. You've got the, yeah. you know, of the arrows going past him, and it's just the attention to detail um, throughout the movie with regard to sound and the soundtrack and all of it was just amazing. The soundtrack is brilliant. It's just incredible how how that all kind of came together right at the, uh, you know, 
I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, yeah. Huh. I, so so yeah. you talked about them having, you know, this James Bond thing where they've got a, you know, you've got this enemy. So how do they, uh, from looking into it, if you did, how did they settle on the Nazis as the enemy? That was an early kind of, uh, an early idea before the, the film got its, uh, its screenplay writer and all that. That was early on before the film was shelved. Uh, what they did was they uh, they were looking for the the main plot device, and they came up with the uh, the arc, and mm-hmm. that was you know uh, I think a, a brilliant uh, a brilliant idea, and uh, uh, so they they were trying to figure out you know how could they have something that that fought against I think it was Spielberg that came up with the the whole Nazi thing. Um, I don't exactly remember, but uh, interesting. So the thing I yeah. find interesting about this movie is, as a general theme, is that you have uh, Indiana Jones, who, as far as I can tell, is at least agnostic, yeah, um, and and perhaps an atheist, but he's clearly sort of treats the treats Christianity as another myth, yeah, uh, and but yet when you when he gets to the ark and he's got his his sidekick, who I can't remember his name, uh, the guy that goes with him everywhere. Um, uh, the uh, yeah the yeah the British guy. I can't yeah. remember his name. Anyway, so you got this guy who um, I gotta look that up now. Yeah, so the uh, you got the guy who you know talks. Well, this is the ark. This is the ark of Christ, and you know it's this is what we've. This is you know a priceless thing, and if we get to it. You know how will we treat it, and so you have this reverence for the ark because of its history and how it, and its and its described power, but yet, but yet Indiana Jones doesn't believe in any of it. Yeah, but yet he still has the respect uh, for for the thing when he finds it. He knows how it should be, and he treats it how he thinks it should be treated, and you see the same thing in. Um, in the third one, when he's picking out the cup, um, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, well, this is not this, a, a carpenter mm-hmm. wouldn't build this cup. Um, you know, a carpenter would build a cup like this. Um, yeah. and so you've got uh, throughout all of the movies, you kind of have this underlying theme of, you know, religion really is important, but I don't believe it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. But he's, uh, so I, I find that interesting. It is interesting. And I think that, that, that's a, uh, uh, sort of a, a realization that your market here, you know, you're, you're, you're tapping into this sort of underlying thing that people kind of think, you know, this, this really does matter. Uh, and uh, you're, you're watching Indy in the beginning. He's like, you know, blah, 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 if you believe in that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And then later on, they, he, he, he seems to start to. And, and it's kind of tapping into everybody's sort of innate there is something more here, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a realization that your, that your audience has these questions as well. Yep. Um, I think that's exactly right. So whether or not, and it's, that's what I think makes it compelling storytelling is that he's exploring, <clears throat> he's exploring not only just kind of this adventure of this crazy guy, you know, running around the planet. Yeah. Um, but you've also got this, uh, you know, this exploration of deeper ideas um, uh, and deeper themes that just makes it then there. And like I said, to me, it's woven throughout all of the movies. And I haven't seen the, the Crystal Skull, but 
Um, don't. But I don't think I will. But um, Marcus but got, Brody. Marcus Brody. That's yeah. it. Yeah, Brody. Yeah. <laughs> and so that to me is uh, anyway. That's the, uh, of the themes that kind of wind their way through these movies, and particularly in the first one, I find that to be pretty interesting. Yeah. Marcus Brody. I, I, so so uh, you know you'll never find him. He'll fit in. You know, blend in, disappear. Right. You know, and That's then it right. cuts to Brody, and he's he's there. Does anybody speak a word of English? <laughs> Brilliant cut. That's right. He's just all sunburnt. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's just looking for, just sticking out like a sore thumb. That was fantastic. Well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Fight scenes. I mean, this movie was about fight scenes. Come on, you know, it's it's basically about fight scenes to get us to the uh, to, to the end where we can. Uh, uh, you know, sort of see the the supernatural equivalent of a of a fight scene. Um, you know, where where the the you know spirit of God comes out and and blows away. You know, like shoots lightning through people's hearts or, or whatever it was. Um, fight scene. So so the the famous one in this film, I think, is uh, well. I guess the famous one might be the one with the airplane, the big, uh, you know, kind of delta wing airplane. But the famous, the other famous one is the one that never happened, the one where uh, uh, Indiana Jones, our fearless hero, uh, you know, needs to do this enormous, elaborate sword fight with this one guy, and instead pulls a six shooter and shoots a guy, and that's it. Yeah, sort of, sort of came came out as a joke, and and that was uh, that was Harrison Ford. That was his idea. He had dysentery, <laughs> and he didn't want to shoot another scene. So he That's goes, funny. He goes to Spielberg. Hey, how do, how about if I just shoot this guy? <laughs> and so that's uh, that's like uh, in. Uh in um, Empire Strikes Back when he's being carbon frozen and Princess Leia says, I love you. And he says, I know. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was completely his line as well. Really? And to me, to totally me, fair. this is uh, that scene that you just talked about. <clears throat> I remember after I saw the movie and I don't know how old I was, but I certainly, I was, well, I guess I was 13 years old. Yeah. Um, but I remember going to school, the, you know, whatever the next school day was, and everybody that had seen the movie, that was the scene we talked about. Isn't it great? You know, this guy's got <laughs> yeah, this big sword and he's yeah. doing this, that, and the other. And, you know, Indiana Jones just takes out a gun and shoots him. And the crowd <laughs> goes crazy, you know? And yeah. uh, I remember talking about that scene uh, as one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. That, well, it, it was so unexpected and, and you know, lighthearted, I guess. Yeah, well, he's, uh, yeah, he's gone fantastic. through all these other guys and he's fought them. You know, yeah. he could have shot all those other guys, right? Yeah. But he, he you know, goes hand to hand with all the other guys on the way yeah. to the, the guy that's dressed in black. And, you know, he's got the, the huge sword. And uh, so he could, have, he could have shot everybody else along the way, but he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and then he gets to that guy and he just says, ah, I don't want, you know, I'm too tired, essentially. Yeah. I'm just going to shoot you. Yeah. Um, so that was a great scene. I think the, my, my, one of the, uh, probably my other favorite scene in the movie is, uh, the scene when he drops down, you know, the entire sequence when he drops down into the snake pit, um, and he's got snakes everywhere and he's got, you know, the torches and eventually, you know, the hole closes up and he's got to find his way out. To me, that's just, I remember sitting in the theater just saying, how is oh my, he going to get out Oh of my this? gosh, what is, <laughs> he's yeah. going to die right here. Yeah. And I remember the, uh, you know, the scene and I, I remember, uh, the scene where he falls, you know, he's dropping down, he falls flat and the cobra raises up right in front of his face. Yeah. And you're thinking, 
how did they shoot that scene? Yeah. And, you know, you, the cobra's a foot from him. How in the world did it, you know, yeah. why didn't the cobra strike? Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, of course you watch the making of the movie later and they've got the plexiglass there. And yeah, you know, which, which when you see that and you look back at the actual print from the film, you can see glints of light. Yeah, uh, can absolutely. And then, so you sit back there. Oh, well, uh, he's totally safe or whatever, but you know what? You bring up a good point because nobody would ever think that, uh, uh, you know, the Harry Potter guy, is in trouble when the big snake comes at him. Yeah. Because you just know, I mean, he's, he's, it's, it's computer generated. It's not really there. You know, you're not really scared for the actor in the scene, not scared on a human level. No, no, no. Maybe kids are because like when, when we saw this movie, when we saw, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, we were very young. I was very young. So, yeah. uh, when I saw that there was, I, there's no way I noticed that. You know, no. I, I saw the, the, the Cobra and I was like, wow, I don't know how they did that. Yeah. Whereas kids today, I don't know if kids today have that same kind of a visceral fear because they understand it or, or not. I don't know. You know, I, I guess, we, you know, have to ask, uh, have to, ask, what does your son think about that? Like so I think, yeah, I think the, to me, I think you're right. So he, you know, first my of all, how like, old is your son? He is seven years old. Okay. And so, but he's read all of the Harry Potter books and seen all of the movies. And I remember that scene, you know, with the basilisk, uh, you know, this huge snake. And, um, and so I think you're right. There's something, because you know, I mean, Harry Potter is fantasy. So it's not, in some ways, it's not, it's a bit of an apples and oranges comparison. Yeah. The, the entire... You know, it's not set in the real world. It's yeah, he not, could just pull out his wand and boom, right. everything. So it's, I mean, Harry Potter is pure fantasy. And so on, in, on that level, um, I think the scene where, you know, you've got this huge snake that's, that's crawling out and, and all of that, I think in that regard, I think it's probably somewhat scary. But you don't have, it's certainly not the same as, you know, okay, well, you're at a zoo, you can see a cobra. Um, and you understand how deadly a cobra is and, you know, you've always read, you know, for me growing up, I was fascinated by snakes and I just remember, you know, okay, a cobra, you know, spits in your eyes and you're blind and, you know, and all of these things. And, you know, it's just, you can't imagine coming up against one and, and how scary that would be. And then in the movie you see it and you're like, God, that snake is a foot from him. Yeah. And what's he going to do? And, and you've got all these asps, yeah. you know, crawling around supposedly, and I don't know, I'm sure they weren't real asps. But. Well, a lot of them were, but yeah, they, they had a, a few rubber snakes as well. But you, so you're thinking, uh, it's, to me, it was, for me, it would, that's, you know, the equivalent of hell for me would be <laughs> being dropped into that thing. And then, you know, all the torches go out. And he's got to find his way out and he's got, you know, the girls yeah. in there with him and she's got a dress on and, you know, you got the, I remember the scene with the snake going through the tip of her shoe. Yes. Um, <laughs> just a, gr- and you're like, oh, that's oh, so gross. gross. She's going to die. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to die. It's interesting how they set that up because in the very beginning when he's taking off on the airplane after having just escaped the, uh, the Indians running across a the field, there's a snake in the airplane. Yeah, he says, exactly. I hate snakes. Yeah. So they set that up. up. So you're like, okay, he, so he hates snakes. But you don't think that they're going to, you know, have a hundred thousand of them in a room, which of course they do. Yeah. Uh, that, I thought that was brilliant. Like, uh, yeah. it's just that tiny little, you know, I guess I do that. Maybe, you know what? Maybe it's because I saw it when I was younger. I didn't think forward, but, uh, or I was so totally engrossed. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. 
In any case, if we keep talking about this, we're never gonna, we're never gonna, we're never gonna button the show up. Yeah, um, we need to do that. We do. So the next, the next film uh, is uh, is the dark one. Is uh, uh, what's the next film? The next film, um, the next Indiana Jones movie is Temple of Doom. Yeah, Much, I didn't like Temple of Doom. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't it, like. I thought it. it was too dark. I did too. But you know how when you're making a movie, how how do you know it's gonna be dark? So right. I think it's for me, the reason that I didn't like it is, and the reason I still don't like it is, <clears throat> um, so you've got kind of the, you know, the, everybody knows the Nazis are evil. Um, yeah. you've got kind of this really clear good and bad in the first movie. It's kind of fun and lighthearted. There's really no, yeah. you don't ever think, you know, that somebody's going to die that you care about. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think the the thing I didn't like about the second movie is you've got, you know, kind of this underground cult thing happening, um, yeah. and you've got you know the guy sticks his hand in the in the chest and pulls the guy's heart out, and you know for me it was like that that movie when my kids watch it we skip that part because it scares them to death. Yeah, I mean it's legitimately and they don't get scared by much, but yeah. that scares the that scares the the pants off them. The pants so, off them. <laughs> So and, do we, and there's nothing like that in the third movie either. The third movie yeah, is, is back to the so, lighthearted, fun, you know, Nazis are bad. Um, you know, you got Sean Connery, who's just hilarious in the third movie. And Yeah. So here's what we do. Let's, let's talk about the second film, but let's really go to Last Crusade. All right. And we've only got, we got about four minutes left. Yeah. Four minutes? Till yeah. Till you have to leave? Till we four have an minutes, hour? Four minutes to the end of the show. Oh, Okay. All right. Well, no. So I think we should talk about that and and uh, uh, you know the next one as well because they do touch on some things in uh, Temple of Doom that were planned for the first film, like a mine car chase scene that were all done in the second film. And so you know we should touch on it. But let's do them both because if we if we didn't like it, we're not going to talk about it for very long. But the next one I do want to get to. Um, so uh, and it brings in that interesting kind of James Bondian thing with uh, with. Um, uh, Sean Connery. Uh, in any case, okay, so that's our, uh, that's our show, uh, I'll say. Um, I did want to mention, so, so you can check us out online at uh, 353rd.com. That's 350-3rd.com. Uh, um, and you can find me, uh, I am Anders Brownworth at AndersBrownworth.com or just Anders.com. And Scott, how can people find you? Uh, you can find me at scottbarstow.com. That's uh, last name is spelled B-A-R-S-T-O-W. And uh, you can find my company at rockethanger.com. Excellent. So uh, I guess that's good. We're, we're, we're out. Uh, we're yep. done. Looking Excellent. forward to the next show where we'll, uh, we'll uh, the format should be about the same. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to the next one. Cool. All bon right. voyage. Indeed.